everybody. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Sean Burns, co-founder and CEO of Outlier, which automates business analysis for some of the largest consumer businesses in the world. Outlier was the 2017 Strata Audience Choice Award winner and was named 2018 Cool Vendor in Analytics by Gartner. Previously, Sean founded Flurry, a leader in mobile analytics and advertising, which was sold to Yahoo in 2014. In his free time, Sean advises to and invests in startups. So perfect guest for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk with Sean about the learnings and insights that he gathered on his journey as a serial founder. But before we get to the good stuff, Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, I hope the run-up sounded uh, about correct. Uh, to get us started, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I think you summarized it well. I've been lucky enough to start a few companies in my career. And I, it's, I a lot of people come to the startup journey as founders for different reasons. Uh, my reason is maybe somewhat unique in that I worked at a lot of places that I felt didn't necessarily treat their employees like people. A lot of companies treat their employees like like widgets where they expect to put a salary in and get some productivity out. And I wanted to work somewhere that, you know, saw me as the whole person that I am, where you could be creative, you could learn, you could evolve, you could have ideas, you could take risks. And the reality is there aren't a lot of ways to do that in, in most jobs. And I was searching for that. And I, I realized eventually that if I wanted to have a place to work like that, I was going to have to create it for myself. And that became my motivating factor for starting companies. And that was true with Flurry, which I started in 2005. It's true of Outlier, which I started in 2015. And, and so far, I'm glad, happy to report that it's been true. I've been able to create companies where I've loved working, that people who work there have loved working. And along the way, we've solved some really interesting business problems and created some new products and some new categories, which is exciting. And Outlier is no different. It's been running for about five years now. And we've really reinvented what business intelligence means and that we use artificial intelligence to automate the process of looking through these vast mountains of data that customers have to help understand what's changing, right? How are your customers behaving differently? How are your buyers evolving? How are the demographics of your consumer shifting? All those questions that are hiding in the haystacks of your data, we help pull that signal out for them. But along the way, we have very strong values. On our website, you can see the values of the company and we try to set a good example about how to build a high growth tech company, believing in values and setting good examples for the next generation of founders. So it's been a really rewarding journey the second time around, and I'm excited to have a chance to do that. Awesome stuff, Sean. Uh, well, I got to say, uh, you know, we get a lot of guests on the show who started companies. You know, everybody who starts a company has an idea for a business, but typically the idea for a business is this would be a great product, not wouldn't it be great if a business worked this way? So I got to say, yeah, you're a bit of a, a, oh my, an outlier, pun pun very much intended. Yeah. So so yeah, I, I do got to say, yeah, it's different to, to hear from somebody who decided to start a company because, you know, they thought that companies could run better instead of maybe chasing after uh, or, or, you know, kind of fulfilling this idea that they had of, a, of what their dream kind of product would be. So um, tell us more about like starting, tell, tell us about the first company. Tell us about Flurry, what that was like getting it off the ground. You already told us about kind of why it got founded. Uh, just take us through kind of what that looked like. Yeah. And I'll start with the fact that you're right that most founders will start because they have an idea for a product or 
they they see some opportunity. And I think that there are years of founder time that are wasted by not spending enough time up front deciding why it's worth it. Because in the dark, starting companies is hard. And I there's no way for me to explain to you how hard it is until you do it for yourself. But there are dark days. There, I, I call it staring into the abyss. You're looking into impossible problems and seeing almost no path to success. And the question is, what gets you through those hard days? What gets you through those dark moments? And if you choose the right reasons, the re- right reasons why, you can navigate those, but otherwise you just burn out and burn through. And so, for example, with Flurry and with Outlier, in both cases, I started out with not an idea of what I wanted to do, but an idea that the right thing to do is find the right problem. So in both cases, I spent about six months with my co-founders exploring problems, dozens of problems. What what kind of problems are out there that you could solve and are they worth solving? And are they problems that will get bigger as time goes on? Because far too many companies are started to solve problems that exist today that a year or two from now won't, won't be very significant. And choosing a problem is so fundamental to, to this process and founders spend so little time on it. And in, as a result, they waste years of their life fighting uphill battles to try to make something grow when spending three, six months upfront really choosing the right problem is the right way forward. So in, in both cases with Flurry and with Outlier, I chose, we started with problems that honestly, we didn't know if you could solve them when we got started. In the case of Flurry, it was this idea of mobile applications and this is in the days before the iPhone, could mobile applications give you the kind of same experience you were getting with web applications at the time? This is 2005, 2006. In the case of Outlier, it's like, can software analyze your business? Can it find these questions for you proactively? Is that even possible? In neither case did I know if it was, but I knew that these problems out of the dozens I looked at were, if you could solve it, it was worth it. Meaning that there was such a big market opportunity and there was so much room for innovation that if you could solve them, it was meaningful. And then your journey as a founder is trying to figure out how to solve them and how how to do that and how to approach it in that orthogonal way. The journey of Flurry was so interesting because we started out trying to be an app developer in 2005, 2006, 2007. And back then, you know, what kind of phone did you have? If you had a mobile phone, it was a flip phone. It was a, it was maybe a BlackBerry if you were really lucky. This is all the pre-iPhone era. And the idea of an app company that didn't, for example, distribute through a carrier that we weren't like on the Verizon app store, that this was a trying to build more like a Google type experience on mobile phones. There wasn't really anybody doing that. It wasn't clear it was possible. And along the journey of finding out it was possible and you could do it, we stumbled on an even bigger opportunity, which was selling um, analytics and ads to other people who had also figured out that was an opportunity along the way. So we went from being gold miners to selling pickaxes to the gold miners that had followed behind us. And then, you know, the iPhone came out and Android came out soon after. And all of a sudden, the market for what we were doing in mobile applications exploded. And, you know, I don't control that. But what we did control was the pivot and realizing that we started out with this problem of wanting to build these mobile applications. In doing so, we found an even bigger problem, which has helped fueling this new generation of mobile app developers. And eventually along the way, we got lucky that the market exploded underneath us. And Outlier, you know, is, is a similar story. We started out with the idea that if if software could find these questions for us in the data, it would add so much more value than just giving us answers. And my co-founder and I, we started out, we didn't know if you could write software to do that. So we just started out as consultants saying, let's go to companies and they'll give us their data and we'll find the questions hiding there. And eventually we, that was working really well. So we started writing software and trying to build products. But Honestly, it took us five or six tries to build a product that really worked well. 
And after that, we benefited from the fact that along the way, AI or artificial intelligence became a mainstream concept with our customers. When we were starting out with Outlier, people used to look at me funny and say, there's no way software could analyze my business. And along the way, we benefited from the rise of AI, which today people are actively seeking these things out. And I, I tie it all back to that the question of why. Like for the values are important. It's it was it's what energizes me individually. But spending all that time up front and picking the right problem and not falling in love with the solution, but falling in love with the problem, which gives us the flexibility to try lots of solutions and find the right solution, is honestly most of the things that I've done right as a founder because it allowed us so much more flexibility, but also the ability to adapt, to pivot, to iterate. And the end result is is success. And it, it's it's exciting. And I want to tell you that I'm a genius and I have all the answers and buy my book. And I'll tell you, at some point in this game, you do it long enough, what you realize is a lot of it is very, very hard work to make sure you can get lucky. That yeah, I spent a lot of time, you know, building these problems and 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 focusing on values. And all of it is to hopefully believe that you can get lucky, which in the case of Flurry and Outlier. I have gotten lucky in some of my other companies that never really got off the ground. That wasn't the case. And the metaphor I like to share with people is at some point in the startup world, it's like all these founders are standing in a field and we're all holding our metal rods, hoping that lightning strikes us. And we're all jockeying for a position and trying to get our, 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 our metal rod a little bit higher than everybody else so lightning can strike us. But the reality is if you look at the statistics of startup success, the chance of you succeeding are about the same as getting struck by lightning. It's just, it's hard. And so you have to have why, because that's what gets you through the dark days and gives you that chance. And it doesn't mean you will be successful, but it definitely gives you the highest chance of getting there. So can you, so you talk about luck and kind of its role in how are you successful? Can you speak more to that? Do you have anything to add there? Because I feel like you're, you're right. Like a lot of starting companies is getting the timing right and just being aware of the environment as it's changing around you and, and then making the right decisions as you're sort of interpreting that environment. So yeah, can you speak to luck and then maybe how you were able to sort of read the situations that were going on and, and, and just in general, what you were able to learn while, while kind of manning the, the ship at Flurry? Yeah, well, I, I think that, and and again, I think that my experience of both Flurry and Outlier have mirrored themselves so amazingly closely that it's they're all blurred together at some point into what is largely a, a single journey. But you're right. In terms of luck, the way I think about it is there are things you control in building your business. And the things you control are who you hire onto your team, uh, the product that you build, the way that you talk to it, a lot those, those things that you control. But so much of your success comes down to things that are not in your control, like shift in the market. I mean, the pandemic that's happened in the last year, the fundraising environment, even the IPO market, when you're ready to go public, so many things that determine your level of success are not in your control that it has to be luck. And I think people are afraid to talk about it in that way because it makes it sound like it's just a gamble, that there's no, there's no skill involved. And obviously that's not true. In some ways, it's a lot like playing sports is that you have to be of a certain skill level to compete. But at some point, it does matter how the ball bounces. Sometimes it does matter, you know, what the weather is like and how these things pan out for you. And so I don't think that believing it's so much luck takes away from founders and their success. It's just acknowledging that we're playing a very high risk game and we have to play it well to have a chance of winning. But just playing it well is not enough. That your success or failure as a founder doesn't reflect on your value as a human being. It doesn't reflect on your skill level as a person. 
And so many, so many founders, mental health suffers because they, they don't understand that they think the success of their business is based on how good they are, or how hard they work or how much they want to succeed. And it's just, it, at some point it doesn't come down to those things. And so like in my, my experience, for example, in both outlier and flurry, I've been lucky that the market has arrived at a point exactly when I needed it to arrive for these companies to take off. I can't control that. I didn't invent the iPhone. I certainly didn't choose to roll out the iPhone when it got rolled out. In fact, if you remember in 2007, when the iPhone was first released, if you go back and watch the launch video, Steve Jobs announced at the launch that it would never run apps, that the iPhone was never going to run apps. It was only going to run websites, which basically you can imagine here's Sean with a mobile application platform. At the time when Steve Jobs, a visionary of technology, is saying that mobile apps are dead and how much everybody was like, wow, Sean really missed the mark. And then it was about nine months later that they launched the app store. And all of a sudden I went from looking like a moron to looking like a visionary and nothing. I hadn't done anything. Literally nothing I had done had changed. The market shifted into me. Uh, The same thing is true of Outlier and the rise of AI. And so there's a point where you you need those things to fall your way in order to find success. And it's very hard to to make those things happen. A a similar example is a lot of the early days of your company. I I believe that that early stage startup companies exist at the, are, are enormously due to the altruism of their early customers. And so whether or not you have a consumer product that the first few buyers, uh, first few consumers that are using it are just trying it out, or it's an enterprise product where you sell your first deal, those first customers, they're doing an enormous valuable service to you and that they're trying, they're making investment, not always in money, but in their time and their evangelism in what you're doing. And that altruism that they give you is enormously powerful to get you started. And often they don't even know that they're doing it. I'll give you an example. In the early days of Flurry, there was... um, there was a person in in Philippines um, and Malaysia. Actually, there was a person in Malaysia. There was also in Philippines who were very early adopters of our product, and they were so excited about it that they would rant and rave. They wrote these. There was articles they wrote in magazines, and we got a lot of our early users from people reading these pe- people whom I had never met and I did not know, it, writing these articles in languages that I do not speak about our product and what we did. And I never met them and I don't know who they are, but that was a lot of the early boost to get you off the ground. And in, in the case of Outlier, it's similar that your first few customers that believed in this idea of a product where it can analyze your business and bring you insights, you know, for your first customer where you have no reference customers, right? You have no case studies. There's, they have to believe that it works in a way that most buyers don't. They're the ones who get you started. And then from there, you can build this kind of momentum and the snowball can grow. But that's another form of luck is can you find those early customers? Can they be altruistic and believe in you and share your vision and get you started? And so it's it's it, luck really is, and I, like I said, people shy away from luck because it makes it sound like too much of a gamble. And the reality is you need those things to fall your way. And sometimes you don't even know that it's happening at the time. Like when the market was shifting at Outlier into AI, I didn't, I don't know that I really understood what was happening at the time about why customers were more and more receptive to our message until in retrospect, you look back and you kind of see that trend. In the case of Flurry, it was obvious because Steve Jobs is on stage announcing these things to the world. But sometimes the luck that you get is obvious. Sometimes you don't realize how lucky you were until years later. Um, Sometimes it's the, the first employee you want to hire 
it turns out that they just happen to be looking for a job at the moment you decide to start looking for them. And, and so you have to benefit from that. And I don't want to take away from the hard work you put in to be there. So at Flurry, we worked for many years building our business, building this platform. So at the point at which Steve Jobs did announce the App Store, we were there with a product and a platform that was perfectly designed to take advantage of the opportunity. Same thing with Outlier. We took complicated AI and we simplified it so that non-technical users can pick it up and be up and running immediately so that as soon as people acknowledged they wanted AI, it was the easiest to adopt product in that category. So we did a lot of hard work, but we still were in that field with that metal rod waiting for lightning to strike us. And I'm just very lucky in these cases that it did. Well, I think you used uh, the three key words from the famous sports quote about luck, which is that uh, luck is when opportunity meets preparation. I think you used all three of those. Uh, uh, but but tell me about, you know, so so you learned a lot at Flurry. Obviously, you, you were very successful there. You, you said earlier that, uh, you know, your experience at, at Flurry kind of mirrored your experience at Outlier. Can you talk about what you meant by that? And, and, and what did you learn, you know, starting the first company that, that, you know, what did you learn that, that you were able to kind of double down and say, yeah, let's, let's do this again. I'm, I'm pushing the chips in <laughs> to the middle of the table. It's a good question. I will start off by telling you what I tell everybody about starting companies, which is the first time, the first company you start, and I knew, had no idea what I was doing at Flurry, but the first time you start a company, it's a little bit like the first time you go on a roller coaster, which is you're scared the entire time because you have no idea what to expect right? It's the first time you've ever been on this roller coaster. So you're white knuckling it the whole time. The second time you go on that same roller coaster, you know when to be scared. And so therefore, when you're not scared, you're just enjoying the ride. But when you know to be scared, you're more scared than you were the first time because you know what's coming. Mm -hmm. And that's basically what it's like as a founder is the second time around, I'm able to enjoy the journey a lot more because I'm not scared every second of every day about what's going on and can we navigate it. But when those important moments come up, I understand the significance of them now in a way I didn't. And it, it is actually more stressful than less stressful. At the same time, I don't think it gets easier. I think that if it was easier, you'd see that second time founders would be infinitely hot, more successful than first time founders. And statistically speaking, second time founders are more successful, but the numbers are so small that it's not like it's a, it's a sure thing. There's no formula here that people have figured out that, you know, just take this playbook go do this and your company will be successful. It just doesn't work that way. And so I'll give you some examples at Flurry. I did, now I'll tell you from Outlier that I know very well is that the most important determining factor of startup success is distribution. And it really comes down to distribution. How many customers or how many users can you get your product in front of? How quickly? That's really the determining factor of success, that the best product doesn't usually win. The best distribution strategies win. At Flurry, I didn't understand that very well. And we got very lucky, as I mentioned, with some of the early adoption and early evangelists to find those distribution strategies that worked for us. But I did not realize how important that was or how getting lucky in that way was so meaningful. But I understand that now at Outlier. And it definitely was a key part of deciding on a problem that would be easy to market. Likewise, at, at Flurry, you know, I, I grew up in a very diverse place. And for me, it was important that I wanted to build a team around me at Flurry that was diverse, but I probably couldn't have explained to you why I thought that that was really important. It was just this kind of intuition or what I was comfortable with was building a very diverse team. At Outlier, I can tell you exactly why. I can tell you about the competitive advantages you get from having a diverse team, about the long-term scalability of the organization, about 
why having a diverse team is one of the best competitive advantages you can build in today's market and all the best things to do to make make that happen. So I understand why it's important in a way I couldn't have explained to you the first time around. At the same time, I'll tell you that, you know, people always are like, well, you, you started the company and it was successful. So you just, you must, it must be easy sailing. And I'm like, listen, I'm just, I'm not going to make the same mistakes I made at Flurry. I'm going to make a whole new, brand new set of mistakes over here. There's a fresh stack of mistakes just waiting, all different, all more confusing, all more complicated than the last ones. So don't worry, there's plenty of mistakes that I can make along the way and I will make them and I'll be very proud of, of making them because nobody's perfect. And in, in, in that regard, I think that the other thing that's evolved for me is lots of people have lots of definitions of product market fit. And I think at Flurry, my definition of product market fit was growth, which was essentially how fast were people adopting what we do. And now I feel like the best measure of product market fit is the company being successful despite all the mistakes that you make. That if a company can really survive all the mistakes that you'll make, and by the way, I don't care who you are, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. There's nobody that's so perfect that you you don't make mistakes. But if the company grows despite those mistakes, that's product market fit. Because that's saying that the strength of the business model and the value that you offer is so high that even if you screw everything up, it's still going to keep growing. And, and the more that that's true, the stronger your product market fit is. Because that leads to growth, inevitably. Like at Flurry, I was looking at growth, but growth is really a bribe by byproduct of that happening. If you really have that fundamental, you will grow, you can grow. And if you don't have it, it's really hard to grow, frankly, because again, you're going to make mistakes. All right. A whole lot to address uh, out of that, but, but I think I got a good little plan here. So um, I, I want to table you know, the discussion about making the right team and, and, and why diverse teams are important. And I also want to put, put an earmark in uh, or a bookmark on the product market fit and, and growth conversation. Uh, I just had a quick follow-up. Uh, you, know, you spoke about getting really lucky with uh, you know, early adopter type of customers at your first company at Flurry. And, uh, you know, even though you guys didn't speak the same language and you'd never met these people, they were essentially early adopters of your product and, and kind of advertising it, um, sounds like outside of the U S. So can you speak to like your early adopters at your second company outlier? Was it also kind of just luck that you were able to find early adopters? Uh, did you go out and find them yourself? Uh, what was that like the second time around? And, uh, yeah, talk about the luck that, that was involved. Sure. So I, a part of Outlier, the, originally the very first few customers came out of this, as I mentioned, consulting project where instead of building software, my co-founder and I, we kind of just rented ourselves out as consultants to companies. And it was interesting because a lot of those companies that we, we reached and we worked with were not companies that I knew. Because I, I think that a lot of founders fall into this trap. They get bad advice that like, listen, you should sell to your friends or sell to your network to get started. And my, the danger in that is it's not really clear signal. Your friends are not necessarily going to be honest with you about what they like or don't like. The same reason your family is not super honest with you. And so I've always sought out people whom I didn't know well as those early adopters because they give you the best feedback. And frankly, just adopting it, they don't know you. They have no reason to adopt it is some of the best feedback you can get. And so that was where the first view. But then the question is, how do you get beyond those first handful? Because any company, any product can get to a handful of customers. And for Outlier, the journey was thus. I had a theory in business intelligence that a lot of companies were very pedantic, meaning they were very condescending in their messaging. If you go to your typical BI company messaging, it says, 
listen, um, buyer, whoever you are, your business is complicated. You can't understand it. You need us to explain it to you. So therefore, we, you need us to help run your business. It's, it's a very condescending attitude because these people are very smart. They know their business very well. And so I had a theory that what if you just changed the voice that you used? If you treated people like instead of I'm your teacher lecturing you, I'm your best friend helping you with your homework, right? Would people respond well to that? I didn't know, but it was a theory that I had. And so we launched a newsletter called The Data Driven Daily, which we still publish today, actually, uh, many years later for Outlier. And the goal of the newsletter was very simply to help people understand how to use data to make decisions in a in a different voice, in a voice that was very helpful and encouraging and positive and not so pedantic and condescending. And, you know, I, I thought it was a worthwhile experiment. It was by far, it's been by far more successful than anything I could possibly have imagined. It was... It exploded into thousands of subscribers in the first few weeks of, of it being live. And a lot of our early customers came from subscribers of that newsletter. And I think one of the things I didn't expect was the newsletter, it just resonated with people so much. We had people approach us saying, I don't even know what your product does, but I want to try it because I love what I've learned from the newsletter. And I love the, the attitude and the voice you're bringing to this, this market. And so that was another form of luck, which is I had this theory of what might work. I had no, honestly, no real evidence that it would. And it ended up blowing up and, and sourcing our first few customers for us through that network. Um, and it, we still run it today. It's been very successful. I mean, I've run other experiments at that time, which were not nearly as successful, but that was the first few customers of Outlier came through that channel. And the interesting aspect of them coming and starting with a newsletter was that by the time we got to the product, they were already supporters of the company. So they were more tolerant of the, the rough spots in the early days. They were more honest with feedback, which again was very valuable because the biggest problem you have in the early days is people who don't like your product won't tell you that. They just won't tell you anything. They'll ghost on you. And so, somewhere along the lines of my life, ghosting became a, a socially acceptable way to move forward. It wasn't always the case, but now it definitely is. And the problem with ghosting is that you don't get any of the negative feedback that you so desperately need. And the benefit we had of people starting with a newsletter was they were very honest and that was enormously valuable to help us address the weaknesses and the difficulties we had. So, so you've already talked a little bit about successful companies are, are ones that are able to able to kind of survive the failures. And, and mm -hmm. now you're talking about negative feedback being, you know, I think you said it's the most important kind. Why is that? You know, what, what is it about negative feedback and people telling you what's wrong with your product that is so powerful? Well, partly it's because people who love your product will be engaged and they you'll have a chance to ask them why they love it, right? And the problem with negative feedback is often it people will walk away and you'll never have a chance to ask them why they don't like it. So it leads to a lot of bias in what you hear from your customers. And so the thing about negative feedback is if you can capture it, it's a rare commodity that you really should value. If, if for no other reason than it helps balance out the positive, because you can imagine the echo chamber that erupts if you only, this is the problem with NPS scores, by the way, for example, if you send out a net promoter score survey, who's most likely to fill out your net promoter score survey? People using your product. Who's not going to send, fill out your net promoter score survey is people who aren't using your product, which means that you don't actually hear what your real net promoter score is because all the people that walked away aren't filling it out. And so that bias is present in a lot of feedback that you get. And it's so important if you can capture it to try to capture it in some way. But it's on its own, it's useless because the other side of that is people like to complain. Users love to, customers love to complain about things. And 
So therefore, you can't always trust negative feedback because sometimes people had a bad day at work and they just wanted to vent. Sometimes people are being critical because they were really optimistic. They have high hopes for your product and your product did a lot for them, but it wasn't magic. And what you're hearing in that criticism is disappointment. So you have to also realize negative feedback comes from lots of places and it's not like you treat it all as it's 100% accurate, but it's a really important kind of point. And I think the founders that are able to see negative feedback, absorb it, but not take it too seriously are the best because if you take it too seriously, you just get depressed. And the amount of rejection you deal with in startups is epic. And sales is very hard because of the amount of rejection. And, and being a founder turns that up to 11 in terms of you're rejected by potential employees, you're rejected by potential investors, you're rejected by potential customers, you're rejected by potential vendors, you're rejected by lots and lots of people across the board. And if you internalize that rejection, that negative feedback too much, and as I said before, if you start to confuse that negative feedback with your own self-worth, there are very dark places that you can go. And it's a very serious problem in the mental health of founders that there isn't much enough support to help people separate those two things. But if you can put it in perspective, if you can acknowledge it, but not have to take it literally, um, it's an enormously powerful insight you get into both your company and the market in a way that it's really hard. Because as a founder, you also can get caught up in your own not your own hype, that's probably a bad way to put it, but you get caught up in your own vision. And the, the feedback that you get is the best way to pop that bubble and make sure you're in touch with reality. Okay, let's move on. I, I definitely want to talk about building the team because it's something that you seem passionate about, having diverse teams. So you earlier you said, uh, you know, there's no blueprint, there's no perfect format for starting a company. Most, most startups do kind of fail. So, uh, you know, there is no blueprint, uh, so to speak, for creating a, a kick-ass team. There's no, you know, uh, there's, there's no blueprint for the A-team of a startup, right? But, you know, as a founder, you, you know, you, you, you take your company uh, as far as you can. And eventually you have, you reach this point where you need to bring in outside talent to bolster the abilities uh, of the team uh, that, that you're kind of lacking in, if that made sense. So speak to how you kind of created a blended and diverse team who did you kind of go after first? And, you know, it's kind of an ongoing process of building the team. So can you just talk about your process and maybe your philosophy to team building? Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have three and a half hours to go through it. So I'll do my best to summarize because it is quite a lengthy topic to go into. Let's start off with the basics. So the basics of it, let's start off with how difficult it is. So finding a co-founder is hard, but hiring your first employee is by far the hardest thing you will do in any business. And a lot of it is, if you think about it, in hiring those first few employees, you have a Venn diagram, which is one of those diagrams that shows the overlaps of different groups. You have the people who have the skill sets that you need, the people who are a good match for your company culture and your communication style, and then the people who are available at that moment in time, and then the people who are willing to take the risk of joining an early stage company. And the overlap of those four things is very, very small. And that's why hiring your first employee is so difficult is that, that the group that you're going after is so amazingly tiny that you have to, this is a part of getting luck. You have to get lucky that there has to be someone available at the time you need them that has a skill set that you want, that matches your needs. All those things have to line up and it's very hard. And this is why most startup companies and most companies in general 
they they talk about diversity, but they don't really value it. And you can tell that they don't value it because they take no actions to try to improve it because hiring is already so hard that you have to have an enormous commitment to make it even harder. And so at Outlier, it was one of our values on day one. And so, for example, when we started hiring, we weren't, we, the rule we had is similar to the Rooney rule in the NFL was we can't hire anyone for any position until somebody from an underrepresented group has made it to the last stage of the process. And it sounds like a small thing to do. It sounds like a simple thing to do, but it takes an enormous amount of commitment to do, to do that, even by making hiring even harder than it already is. Um, from the from the very beginning. When, by the way, you're also fighting against oblivion. You're fighting against the company even existing in six months. You're fighting on every front, and then you're taking on this existing burden, which, by the way, is completely optional, where you can build a financially successful business without valuing it. It's really hard for people to do. Um, likewise, our interview process at Outlier is very different than most companies. It's based almost exclusively on a work simulation, where we give a candidate a problem that they would face in this position, we don't tell them how to solve it, or we don't even know what, there's no right answer. We just say, listen, show us how you work. How do you approach problems? How do you communicate? How do you solve these things? And then we sit down with them as if they're on the team and work through it with them. So they get a sense of how we operate. We get a sense of how they work. And that kind of work simulation opens the world to lots of diverse backgrounds. It means that people don't have to have my same life experience and my same skill set to approach problems in the way I would approach them and solve them the way I would approach them. Like, I don't need that. I know what I think already. I want people who have different perspectives. The work simulation opens it up so that people from diverse backgrounds and diverse communication styles, diverse working can, can show us how they best work. And it works extremely well, but it's a lot of effort, right? It's a big investment. Most companies go for interview processes. They can move quickly that are lowest effort possible. So again, it's a commitment you have to make that requires a lot of, I guess I'll call it intestinal fortitude because, you know, your investors are shouting about how fast they want you to grow. The market's growing. You may have competitors that are growing. And here you are taking on this added burden of a commitment to building a diverse team that there's no economic um, urgency to. There's a long-term economic urgency because like I said, if you build a diverse team, you have an enormous competitive advantage in the future. But there's a very little short-term benefit for doing it. And that's why most people end up taking a shortcut and they have, find so hard to commit to it and take actions towards it is because it is substantially harder and you have to really believe in it. And I think one of the benefits I had at Flurry was that the fact that, like I said, I'd grown up in a diverse way. For me, that felt like the most natural environment. And then at Outlier, I knew exactly how much more competitive you are if you have a diverse team and the, the long-term economic impacts and that, that it was... I mean, other than just being the right thing to do, it meant that you can build a better company. And I felt like at Outlier, if we did that and showed how a more diverse tech company can grow faster and be more successful, that it will break down some of these bad habits. But it also, in the early days, it required that commitment that I had, uh, that me and my co-founder, Mike Kim, had to, to building a diverse team because it's, it is easier to go the other routes and you need to be committed in that way. And we were, and I think we've shown a good map forward. And I've been really encouraged at how many other companies have started adopting a similar process to what we use um, because it means that they're taking it seriously too. They're seeing the long-term benefits that make the short-term pain worthwhile. And for me, that's the most encouraging trend I'm seeing in technology is these companies are making that choice to make it harder on themselves early to build diverse teams to pay off later, which if you go back five or 10 years was most definitely not the case. 
Uh, you, you talk, you say that you use the word commit a lot and, and, um, you know, committing to doing the right thing is difficult, even when you know, it's the right thing, even when you know that in the long term this is going to be the best thing for you, it can be hard, right. <laughs> to fight, uh, kind of your, your short-term realities. There's always, you know, kind of a commitment when you're hiring someone, you, you only get a partial picture of the individual in front of you during the interview. And, you know, the person you're hiring is going to be bigger than that. Uh, and you're going to learn about them as you go along. Is there, is it always like, um, is it always a gut feeling that you have uh, to, to, to know that the hire is right? How do you know when you, when you see that first employee and he is the, the candidate that meets those kind of, uh, he's, he's, he's in the center of that Venn diagram. How do you kind of know that? Is it just a gut feeling? Do you have like a, a, a list of requirements and you're checking the boxes? How do you know that this is the, the, the right person to hire at the right time? And then is it different as the, you know, is the right hire different at the beginning than it is at the middle and the end of your kind of startup life cycle? Wow, there's a lot of questions in there. Okay, I'm going to do my best to answer them all, but you hold me accountable that I actually do get to them all. Let's start off with who, how do you know who you need to hire? My method is very straightforward, is that especially in the early days of a company, you make a list of all the company killing risks, and your job is to hire people to mitigate those risks. And so you know, I'll give you a hypothetical startup company, a software company. The first risk is that you never build a product, that your product never goes live. So the first risk, might you might mitigate that by hiring an engineer to help you build the product. The second risk is that you'll never sell it to anyone. And so the, sec- the next hire is a salesperson. Like It sounds simplistic, but really it just it speaks to what are the highest priorities for the business. And you want people who own those, those risks. And that kind of helps you understand who you might need in your team. To your point about how knowing of a specific prospect, if, if she's the right person or not, that's why it, it should never be your gut intuition, because if it's your gut intuition, what's happening is your unconscious bias is kicking in. And we all have unconscious bias. And that's where discrimination and structural um, issues arise. The whole point of the work simulation I described is that I don't have to trust my gut, gut intuition. We can see them do the work. We can see them work alongside us. And it's often very clear. And you're right that most interview processes are not predictive of future success. And that's not true of work simulations. They're actually very predictive of future success because you're asking the person to do the job and do the work alongside you and seeing how they work and how it evolves. Is it perfect? It's not perfect. There's no such thing on planet Earth as perfection. And so can you avoid hiring people that might have been great? Sure. Can you hire people that won't work out? Sure. But this, this, statistically speaking, you'll do it very infrequently. And so you can have a lot more confidence that the people you're hiring will perform in the way that you need them to, because you've seen them do that as part of the process that you put in place. It is more time intensive, but the benefit you get is that certainty and that the lack of bias influencing the process and more objectivity in that these people had a chance to perform and they performed and it's what we needed to do. So great. Let's, let's keep running with it. Um, and I, I, I don't want to make it sound like that's how simple it is because all of the all of the details are in the execution. And there's often the problem about, okay, how do you find the candidate in the first place to even have a chance to put them through your interview process, regardless if you use a work simulation or not? And I, I take that back to distribution. Like the ability to reach candidates that want to work at your company is a distribution problem. The same way finding customers or users of your product is a distribution problem. The same way finding investors... Distribution is essentially a fancy way of saying, how do you raise awareness? How do you get in front of the people that you need to get in front of to be able to make get the business started? And the reality is there's no easy way 
to, to solve the distribution problem. I will tell you that of the successful companies that I know, all of them use distribution strategies that were radically different across the board. Because by definition, if you're going to find success in a world that so few startups find success, you're going to do something different than everybody else did. And if distribution is the most important factor in success, you're going to have to do something different in distribution. So you see some founders, for example, that are hiring their early team from their last company because they had the unfair advantage of knowing these people and working with them and hiring them out. You see other people that hire people from their university, people they went to school with. Unfortunately, in both of those cases, often what happens is you end up with a less diverse team. And so then you have other people who go to great lengths to raise their profile on social media. They try to create followings so that they attract a more diverse group of people to work at their companies. And that can be better, but equally hard. How do you build a large enough audience on social media just to be able to hire people for your team? That's hard to do. And so solving these distribution problems, they're not easy because a lot of founders may have backgrounds in things like engineering, where you're used to deterministic problems, self-contained issues, where these problems in distribution, there are no answers. You just try a bunch of stuff and you see what works. Literally, there's no way to, to imagine what will work ahead of time. You just have to experiment, experiment, experiment. And some founders are better at that than others. Some try to take one thing and really force it to work. Others are probably too eager to, to try one thing and run into the next thing. And there's a balance about trying things, committing to them and moving on if it's clear they're not going to work. And it, it appeals, it applies to hiring, it applies to selling, it applies to marketing, it applies to fundraising. Everything you do, it comes down to, to distribution. Last question here on the teams. It, it seems like having a, you know, diverse, you know, having a diverse team at your company is a lofty goal. It seems like it would be very hard to you know, achieve that. Have you found that that approach has helped you recruit talent um, in the long run? I, so I will challenge you on that. Why, why is it harder? Like if you really want to hire the best people, then theoretically speaking, your company should reflect the general population because there's no reason, there's no specific demographic that has a monopoly on the best people. And so if you really are hiring the best people, it should reflect the general demographics of the country. And if that's not the case, I would argue you're not really hiring the best people. And so I actually don't see it as um, a difficult, logical leap to make that the more diverse your team is, the more likely it is you are hiring the best people. And you are right that the more diverse your team is, the easier it is to hire a more diverse team in the future. So for example, for at Outlier, we've hired two women that were eight months pregnant when they started with us, meaning that they joined the company and almost immediately went out on maternity leave. Most most times, you know, if you're a, a soon-to-be mother, you're not going to join a tech company. Tech companies are horrible places to work for mothers. I think the difference is at Outlier, in the interview process, they're interviewing with people who are mothers already and can speak to what we do. And that diversity becomes a reinforcing virtuous cycle. But even before that, how do you get to the point that it can be a virtuous cycle, that you can see that start to pay off long term? And that's like I said, at some point you have to have a commitment. And you're right, I do say the word commitment a lot. And I actually think the word commitment is important because, you know, you mentioned before knowing something is the right thing to do. There is literally no way to know it's the right thing to do. It's just impossible. There's not enough data. There's You haven't literally, when you first start a company, you have nothing, Right. And the commitment comes from because you have to believe it's the right thing to do, even without evidence, even without any knowledge of it, you have to believe. And that's the commitment that I mean, is commitment to that belief and commitment that you're not, you're going to see it through 
even without any sort of logical framework or data to back it up, belief that that will come later in retrospect and that you need, you need to have it. You, you absolutely a thousand percent need to have it. And I will say that a lot of founders have that commitment around their vision for the product. Fewer founders have that commitment around their vision to the problem that their product is solving. They fall in love with the product and not necessarily the problem. And even fewer have that commitment to their vision of, of what a great company looks like. And you, we have no shortage of companies that are very large and public that are just toxic places to work. And that goes back to my point before. There's no real economic incentive to be a, a great person. There's no economic incentive to run a great company. The reality is you have to believe that it's the right thing to do. You have to believe it pays off long term. Because if you look at just the evidence, you're not going to see a lot of evidence. So why is it then that so many of these late stage, larger tech companies are cesspools of, of toxic cultures? Because there was never an alternative. There was never another place that those employees could go work that wasn't toxic. And so the, the commitment and belief I have is that if you create a new generation of companies that are not that way, that are values driven, that you're going to see fewer and fewer toxic companies succeed because the best people don't want to work there because they have an alternative. But I have to believe in that. I have to be committed to that belief because it's too early to have the data to back it up. So, Sean, you know, you use the word commit a lot. You seem like a very driven person. Like if 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 I was like watching you run a race and I was like screaming at you, like my screaming would never knock you off course. You would just kind of go in the direction you were going and it would be like, oh, you know, an afterthought. Was there like a was there a guy screaming back there? <laughs> so, so, you know, I don't imagine that you're kind of like looking over your shoulder too much at the competition. But, you know, you're uh, you're 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 a chief executive officer uh, at a at, at a tech startup, right? So, right? I hope so. I really, I really hope so. Because if I'm not the CEO anymore, my co-founder didn't give me the news ahead of time, which is kind of an awkward way to learn about it. Yeah. So you are, you know, a, a chief executive officer at a startup company. You have to consider your competition and 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 the market that you're in, right? So, how do you do that? How do you evaluate the market and and the you know the other people that are that are in it? Well, let me start off by saying I don't think any founder, me included, ignores the people shouting from the sidelines, especially the naysayers. It's impossible. The only people that can really zone that out are narcissists. And it is, not, it is frankly not a coincidence that narcissism is so rampant among CEOs that it's a great coping mechanism in a world of rejection where you can just literally zone out all of the rejection. For the rest of us humans, you just have to get very good at putting it in context. Like I said before, you have to disassociate your own value of self-worth from the company. You have to realize where that negative criticism is coming from and sort out the, the constructive criticism from the, the, the not constructive criticism. It's, it's a learned skill. It's a skill of dealing with rejection over many, many years and getting good at it over time. It, it's not easy. And I don't think it ever gets easier. Nobody wants to hear about how horrible they are. But the reality is people are going to tell you about that. And you just have to learn to, to absorb it and grow with it. It's really, really important. And I, I, at some point, it sounds like to be successful and to navigate this, you have to be stubborn. And I, I want to make it really clear that I don't think that's actually a good thing either, because you need to be flexible. You have to learn from the market. You have to learn from what the market's telling you. And if you don't learn from the market, it's very unlikely that you're going to be successful. Like no successful company I know of has found success doing what they started out to do. Everyone's maybe it's not as significant, a huge pivot as Flurry made. But there's a lot of little pivots along the way that happen. And so you mentioned competition. 
this goes back to choosing a problem. And I think the best thing that you can, best favor you can do for yourself as a founder is spend a lot of time choosing the problem. We've talked about that already. But the second best thing you can do is make sure that your criteria for what a good solution to that problem looks like is very clear and focuses on what I'll call visible differentiation. Meaning that if you are going to solve a problem, a whoever the user, it could be a user of a mobile app or an enterprise customer, whoever it is, when they see your product, you don't have to explain to them why it's different. You don't have to explain to them why it's better. You don't have to explain to them these sorts of things. It should be self-evident in the first 30 seconds to a minute about why it's better. And that's so important because if you can focus on that and that becomes a criteria of what the right product or the right solution to your problem is, it means that no matter how the competitive landscape evolves, you'll always be well positioned to deal with it. And it often requires a lot of very hard work. I'll give you an example of both Flurry and Outlier. So at Flurry, uh, the, it was an analytics product you'd embed in your mobile app, which means you had to go to our website and sign up and download our SDK, which you then would build into your mobile app and republish your mobile app, which means you're, you're writing some code. It can be an onerous process. And so I obsessed for six to nine months in that sign-up process. How can I make it as fast as possible? How can I make sure that SDK required just one line of code to be integrated? And I can't tell you how pathologically obsessed I was on this. And we went to enormously great lengths to make that. We had to invent some technologies to make this happen. And it was a Flurry was a free product. And so I, I, I knew that competitors would immediately sign up and then copy it. And so it was at most a head start. But I thought that even when they copied it, at least we were so easy to use that they would not be easier. They might be just as easy to use, but they would not be easier. And then Four and a half years later, I didn't touch this sign-up process for four and a half years. We were still recognized as the easiest to integrate product in the marketplace. And I realized that people weren't able to replicate that because they weren't as obsessed as I was. And as a result, what customers saw, that initial experience was so much better with Flurry that it was a sustainable long-term advantage. Same thing with Outlier. One of the things that I realized early on is if you're going to offer an AI product that analyzes your business, you're going to get a lot of people that are skeptical. And rightfully so. And so the best thing that you could possibly do is show them, is as fast as possible say, this is what we do. You might be skeptical, but let us show you it working as fast as possible. And so we spent an enormous amount of time building a system that has a zero effort integration where most business intelligence tools, the integration process alone takes six months uh, just to get set up. Whereas Outlier, it's a few days. Our, our payback period is less than three months which again required an enormous amount of effort, a lot of inventions of new technologies and something that I obsessed about. But the end benefit is that now as the market gets more competitive, as more people realize the opportunity, we are well positioned regardless of what comes along because we obsess so much on this visible different. And this is just one example um, that I'm using around that initial experience, but it's an important one. It's very visible, obviously. And it's a clear differentiator because if it takes you only minutes to set up Outlier and you start getting value from it in days, it's obviously different than those products that are telling you we'll have you definitely set up in three or four months. And so the more of that you have, the more visible differentiation you have, the better success you'll have against competition regardless of where it comes from across the board. And I don't want to say it's that simple because in practice, it's nearly impossible. You have to be really creative. You have to really understand the problem. Um, it's very hard to do, but if you can do it, that's, that's the approach that has long-term success. 
Because literally almost any other form of advantage you might have, other than scale, which you can't have at the beginning, you get scale later, is something someone else can 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 angle around or deposition you against. Are there any other elements about your product and, and how you sell it, I guess, that kind of contribute to your success, you know, uh, that, that make people want to buy it? Yeah, I think that you, you do yourself a favor if you do things as differently as possible than everyone else. You don't want to reinvent the wheel. And I think a lot of startups and a lot of founders lose so much time reinventing everything. But I'll give you an example. At Outwire, it, it, most business intelligence products are priced by the number of seats, meaning the number of users of the product, or the total data volume, the amount of data in all your databases that you're using it to visualize. Here's the problem with both of those pricing models. If you're per seat based, it, there's no incentive for more and more users to use a product in an organization because it'll cost them more. And any product, what you'd love is to have more and more people using it. On the flip side, if you charge companies by data volume, I mean, companies are accumulating so much data every day. Really, it's just a tax, right? Your product can do nothing different but cost 10% more next month just because your data volume has gone up. And so, you know, we, we, we charge, uh, Outlier is price based on the number of integrations, the number of systems you connect us to, which is very predictable on a cost basis because you decide when you add a new system to the Outlier product. But it also maps the utility, meaning the more systems you integrate us, the more value you get. It, it makes sense that it should cost more because you're getting more from it. It's a very different model than the business intelligence industry has ever used before. But customers love it because it's so clear. It's so predictable. And it also shows that we're very thoughtful about offering a whole solution, not just trying to copy what's off the shelf or these sorts of things. And so there's lots of examples that you can find like that. And But you don't want to stand apart so much that you're so different that customers have a trouble wrapping their head around what you do. And that's a mistake. So for example, I'm not going to charge people in, I'm not going to have them pay us in Bitcoin because most enterprise companies look at me funny and, and not even know how to get started with that. But, you know, being creative and stepping apart in a way that isn't so alien that they can't map it, but is new and refreshing is the best favor you can do for yourself. Well, who knows? You know, maybe nine months from now, uh, once the market has changed, you'll look like a genius for asking people to pay you in Bitcoin. <laughs> well, I certainly would have been five years ago because we wouldn't be needing any, any more financing for sure. All right, Sean. Well, thanks for joining. Any final thoughts here uh, as we kind of conclude the episode? Yeah, I will, I will leave you with what I, I talk to all founders about. And I think it's a really, really important thing to know, which is that founding a company is exciting and thrilling, but there are going to be very dark days. And mm. in those dark days, you need to have a support system to help you because the mental health risks of this journey are, are just too high. And I have seen too many founders have nervous breakdowns and 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 do very unhealthy things that... They don't have to be that way. And so finding a support network to help you through those dark days is, is critical because we're all humans. We're not, there's no myth of a founder who is a robot, who is a visionary, who can withstand all this criticism and always know that they're right and never doubt themselves and never make mistakes. It's, we write these books in retrospect about these founders and make them seem like superheroes. And I don't think people realize you watch an action movie where your action hero is shooting all these people and it's impossible because they don't get shot. And you don't think about these founder stories where these founders are just, they're like, oh, you know, so-and-so made a mistake, but then they fixed it and everything was great. It's, 
in the moment, you're like, oh my God, I made a mistake and I killed the company. And how do you deal with that stress? And it's acknowledging that that's okay, that those feelings of stress, those feelings of fear, those feelings of inferiority, those are normal and everybody feels them. You're not the only one. And in those dark moments, make sure you have people around you to help carry the burden because no human being on planet Earth can possibly deal with the extremes of stress of, of being a founder on their own without cracking. And the worst possible outcome of a startup company is not the company failing. It's that your mental health gets affected in a way that has a lasting impact on your life. And it's just, it's not worth it if that's the case. I think that's well said. Sean, thank you. It was a very raw interview, but I can't wait to listen back and, and, and kind of pull out those lessons. Uh, I, think, uh, I think I'll be, be using the word distribution uh, a lot in the future here. And very appropriately, that's the airplane taking off as we fly back to our, our home locations, which I love. No, thanks for having me. It was fun. And I hope that uh, someone learned something from the rantings of a madman. Always to be in doubt, but never not to be confident. Before we get out of here, what's the best way for the listeners to reach you and Outlier? Yeah, you can find us on Outlier. It's just outlier.ai is our website. You can find me. I'm on Twitter, just at sburns. Um, also, seanburns.com is my personal website. I'm always available if people want to reach out and they have questions about founding or challenges. I don't have a lot of free time, but I try to pay it forward as best I can. Awesome. All right, Sean. Well, thank you for joining the show. Uh, you know, this was part of your free time and paying it forward. So can't wait to get this out there uh, and distribute these lessons uh, all over the world. We're going to end this episode there. If you liked our show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating. Thank you, Sean, for joining the show today and sharing with us. It was, uh, it was a delight. Thanks for having me.